Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and mini-series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, we're recasting Nate's 2017 discussion with Ed Ward about 1959 or the year of death and soul. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. big year for rock and roll a sad year for rock and roll but a year that kind of saw a lot of styles coalesce into a new thing that really is the style of rock rock and roll and pop music until about 1963 yeah that's that's absolutely true Uh, the great thing about popular music of all sorts uh, around this era is is that they're dynamic they're they're always changing and innovating and and um and the public is, is responding positively to these changes, which they don't always do. Indeed, but it starts off with a tragedy. It infamously memorializes the day the music died by Don McLean in the 70s, but February 3rd, 1959, a plane goes down in Iowa in a snowfield, kills Buddy Holly at age 22, Richie Valens age 17, J.P. Richardson, the big bopper in his early 30s, I mean, a tragic loss. I think you kind of understate how big a loss the three of those guys were, their futures, but... Well, to some extent. I mean, Buddy uh, was, I think, in danger of becoming a a pop musician along the Bobby Rydell line. And and in fact, uh, Bobby V uh, finished the tour with him, with the Crickets uh, backing him up. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to say bad things about Buddy Holly. He, he was very much an adventurous, questing mind. And um, one of the bad possibilities is the um, Gordon Jenkins connection. And the, it was also a distinct possibility that the Crickets, he had not treated them too well in his rise to stardom. And he, but he left the door open for negotiations and getting back with them, and they really were rock and rollers uh, to to some well to to a great extent. They they weren't like a maniac hard rock band or or crazy rockabillies or anything, but they they understood um, what this new music was about. And right about the time the plane crash happened, they had been talking among themselves. And they had called Maria Elena, uh, Buddy's wife in New York, 
and um, said that they they wanted to talk to him. Next time he checked in, he, um, she should tell them that uh, they were wanting to talk to him. So that might have also happened. So I, I really don't know. Richie Valens is another um, question. Really, he hadn't developed enough. He's only uh, 17. Yeah, to, to, to everybody to say this was like a major loss. Um, what Richie Valens was though was he was a East LA Chicano star and this was a pardon the expression a racial um identity that had not happened yet um, in rock and roll, in rock yeah. and, roll. A- and um it was it was and it was rock and roll it wasn't it wasn't uh, the old Pachuco swing uh thing which had been the last hot thing out of East LA and also uh in the world of Latin pop music, there are several Latin pop musics in the United States, and one of the big rivalries has always been between Texas and California, and Richie was being accepted in Texas, which is a huge thing, uh, politically speaking. So, once again, we don't know what might have happened there. J.P. Richardson was a professional songwriter as well as a disc jockey <clears throat> in East Texas, in Beaumont, I believe. Yeah. And, um, you know, his shtick was uh, writing novelty songs. He wrote Running Bear for Johnny Preston. And, and, and White uh, Lightning for George Jones. Yeah. Which are, I mean, White Lightning is a great song, but um, who knows? I mean, yeah. like you say, he's in his early 30s and he, he, it was a career, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. He's, he's the one that there's, probably the fewest what-if questions around, but I think Richie Valens, especially, like La Bamba is something we just take as part of the culture, but in 1958, when he recorded it, it was way ahead of its time. It's incorporating folk rock, folk music, and the stuff he's doing with electric guitars is absolutely on the bleeding edge of yeah, rock and roll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, a friend of mine, Tom Miller, wrote a book about La Bamba that goes into great detail about what the song is about, where it came from, I mean, geographically where it came from. And um, the idea that this, well, it, for one thing, it's in Spanish. Yeah. Um, which, which would have made it almost impossible to get on the radio um, in future years. Uh, for a long time, it's it's changed by now, but um, the, for a long time, the only hit songs were in English. Yeah, and and it, it was a B-side. It, it didn't become legendary until later. But this was a period when foreign language songs could occasionally break through. There was a huge number one hit in Japanese in t- 1963, for example. And before that, I think in, in 58, uh, Volari, of uh, Domenico yeah. Modugno. Yep, and so... You know, anyway, it's very, it's one of the biggest what ifs in rock and roll history to me. What if Richie Valens had lived? Because you see, his torch is kind of carried by like Chris Montez and the guy who wrote Hippie Hippie Shake was Latino and, and recorded right. that same scene. Trini so, Lopez. Trini Lopez, obviously, yeah, com- comes out of that scene. So, you know, if Richie had been there to be the visionary, the songwriter, and the star, some exciting things could have happened. So, tragic loss, but the tragic loss that didn't happen, Waylon Jennings. Lost the, or he won the uh, the coin toss, uh, or no, he lost the coin, yeah, he toss, lost the coin and, toss, and and uh, Richardson got his seat on the plane. Yeah, and and Jennings in his autobiography that he co-wrote with uh, Lenny with, Kay. with Lenny Kay says that the last thing he ever said to Buddy Holly, who was a dear friend and who'd been mentoring Waylon for a couple a year and a half or so at that point, Waylon was a DJ in Lubbock. 
an aspiring singer, the last thing he ever said, Buddy said to him, I hope you freeze your ass off on the bus, when he told him that he was going to be riding the bus instead of the plane, he said, I hope your plane crashes. Whoa! <laughs> yeah. And so Waylon had a serious case of survivor's guilt about that for many years. I believe it. I believe yeah. it. Yeah. And if you've ever seen the photos that, that Waylon and Buddy took in the photo booth in New York City, those were two cool cats. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, that, that was uh, really so. I, I, I'm reminded of an interview that I believe uh, Alan Freed did on his TV program with Buddy, um, which the one of the great tragedies about CD reissues is sometimes things come out in different forms. There was a LP box set of, of Buddy Holly's, and one of the things on it was this interview, and. Uh, Freed was saying, hey, we really had some tour back then a couple of months ago. And he said, do you remember landing in Cincinnati? And Buddy goes, oh, man, you know, the, the plane was going whoop, whoop, whoop. And I was just, I, I thought I was going to die there. And, and there was a plane crashed into the mountain. And I thought, oh, God, you know, it was so creepy listening to that. And it is true. The Cincinnati airport at that time was in a bowl. Uh, surrounded by hills, and it was an incredibly dangerous one to fly into. Yeah, it's sort of uh, uh, Appalachian uh, death invitation if you've ever flown into Cincinnati. Yeah. It's going to be extremely scary. And so, yeah, I mean, an enormous loss to start off the year, and we know from accounts of, say, the Beatles over in Liverpool that this was this was a huge stab in the heart to rock and roll fans everywhere. Right. Well, and and in in... England particularly because Buddy was probably the biggest rockinest guy who had performed. I think he'd performed twice in England. I think he'd done two tours. Yeah. A and that was like, you know, because they wanted Elvis, but they weren't going to get him. And they didn't know that yet. Um, and they kept hoping that other people would, you know, come over and, and uh, tour. But it was very expensive. Uh, Buddy was making loads of money. And so it was not a big deal for him and the crickets to get on a plane and go over there. But, um, yeah, I mean, if he's not coming back, who are we going to get? Yeah. And it turns out they get Gene Vincent and Eddie Cochran briefly. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and I think George Harrison was only one of the Beatles who actually bothered to see Buddy when he played Liverpool, which is Lennon set out many a show. But I'm really surprised Paul McCartney didn't bother to yeah, get Yeah, I, I never understood, especially since Paul wound up buying the Buddy Holly uh, <laughs> faithfully, song catalog. Faithfully bought that. But the other big development that year, you know, you call your chapter Death and Soul is soul music begins to coalesce. It coalesces around Ray Charles and Sam Cooke uh, and some other figures. But Ray Charles comes out with What I Say, which is sort of the birth of riff rock. Well, it's also, it's also overt gospel music. Um, I, I Unlike a lot of the uh, gospel crossovers, I can't think of the original song for that. But really what it is, is it's the end of every great gospel performance, um, it starts at the end with the, you know, the the uh, call and response and and the stop time rhythm and all that kind of stuff going on, and um, and Ray is you know hooting and and hollering and growling like a seasoned gospel performer. Yeah, which he was. Basically. Well, I don't know. I mean, the really. I don't think there's any record of his being in a an organized gospel group. Huh. Um, 
he's just somebody who spent a lot of time in church with his ears wide open. He was blind, you know, so he was probably catching nuances that he, hmm, what can I do with this? But mainly he was a piano player at that point. And um, they're sort of low on the totem pole guys in gospel music. Do you know if he played the organ part on what I say? He may have. I really, uh, I would have to go look that up. Yeah, because John Lennon, you know, identifies that song as the beginning of riff rock. That's where his obsession with songs built around riffs start. And, huh. You know, Day Tripper. There's another song that where uh, a soul singer did it with a guitar a couple of years later, and we'll talk about that, that Lennon identifies as the moment that moves to guitar. But, I mean, what I say was a staple for the Liverpool rockers, not just the Beatles, I think they stopped playing it when Stu Sutcliffe died, according to Lewison's book. Uh-huh. And, uh, but it was a huge part of the repertoire in, in Germany. It's simple. Yeah. It, it's like, you know, it, it's like Louis Louis. It, it's, it seems simple. Louis Louis actually is simple. Um, there's a lot you have to sort of know about yourself and about uh, music to carry off a good version of what I say. And you're not ever going to reach the Empyrean Heights of Ray Charles. No, probably not, but I would love to have heard the Beatles version. I don't know that any uh, evidence, any recordings exist. I, I don't think it. it's in any of the Hamburg tapes. No, but uh, the big three, their rivals in Liverpool, uh, put it on wax, and it's a pretty solid uh, take huh. on it. But one thing about, you know, you're talking about Buddy Holly and the perils of Gordon Jenkins. I think that Buddy probably would have stayed on that I mean the thing about Buddy was he was a songwriter and especially if the critics return if the crickets returned to him he would have had a coterie of he would have a club of musicians that he played with which I think would have insulated him somewhat he's not somebody like Little Willie John that's kind of at the mercy of a producer and arranger and so he, he would have had a lot of motive force but this is not just the year that soul emerges but this sort of I don't know what you'd want to call it Rococo doo wop you get Phil Spector, 18 years old, forms a group called the Teddy Bears, writes the B-side for what he thinks is a single, becomes a number one hit. Right. But I, I would, you know, would not call that Rococo under any uh, circumstances. <laughs> it's so simple and so basic, and it sort of fades in at the very beginning there, um, like they're uncertain what they're doing. But there's a... a sort of eeriness to it that that is at odds to the singer i can't remember her name all of a sudden yeah i'm blanking on that too but but it, but they but then you learn which they certainly didn't uh, publicize at the time that the lyrics were inspired by the inscription on phil specter's father's tombstone to know him was to love him and who committed suicide when Phil was nine. Really? I didn't know uh, that yes. either. Yes, Man. it's one of those unconfirmed things. And years later, of course, Phil's son dies when his son is age nine in the early 90s. And that kind of starts Phil's ultimate dissolution. But mm. So Phil had this tragic life, but he's able to express it beautifully in music. The one thing that's not simple about that song, though, is the bridge, which he swiped from Wagner, and which Beatles obsessives... You know, they know that Lennon sang that song a ton and those chord progressions show up again Hmm. and again in Lennon's work. So, um, you know, and it's also the year that Sea of Love comes out, which I don't know which of those two singles came out first, but Sea of Love is something that has a very similar feel. Right, right. And and that that is out of Louisiana, um, Lake Charles, to be exact. 
um, and and uh, well, I'm trying to remember the name of the the record label, because um, they they mostly did Cajun and Creole stuff, and later on horn bands and and so forth that, that yeah. played around uh, Western Louisiana. Um, sea of Love that came out of nowhere. Phil Phillips. Um, the writing credits are for Mr. Curry, who owned the label, but as always with a little label that comes out of nowhere, you have to wonder about that. About who really wrote it. And and so, you know, so Rokoko is probably the wrong term, but I don't know how to describe it, but there's a, a music that's more superficially subdued and sedated. Like your narrative or a lot of times the critical narrative has been this is the beginning of the or this is the dark ages of rock and roll between the first wave of rock and rollers and before the British invasion. But really, I mean, you've got Phil Spector, you've got Goffin and King, you've got Motown starting. There's a lot of really young, yeah. talented people making some really great music. In yeah, and and uh, it really it's all it's only dark if you look at one side of it. There's there's a lot going on. Uh, beyond that, it's just it's regional. You know, it, you could be living in a place where you heard things that were not available to people in, in other places. You know, especially especially um, people in large metropolitan areas, uh, because rock and roll radio or pop music radio was a, a big deal in New York. It, it was a high dollar operation, Los Angeles, Chicago, but not so much Minneapolis or Dallas. Yeah, although Dallas had been the break for Elvis. Yeah, but that's that you're proving my point by saying that. They had to import somebody else. Well, no, yeah, there wasn't anything. It was, you know, the the radio stations in Dallas is maybe a bad example because there's a large listenership. But in terms of it being a media center producing stuff, it was it was nowhere. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, unlike New York, I mean, New York, they had you know Radio City, which was like a major radio and television um, production and and broadcasting facility that was part of a network that went all across the country. NBC Radio, you know, that's a big deal. NBC Television. Yeah, and to go back to New Orleans real quick, somebody that we talked about as a sort of progenitor we've argued about whether Lloyd Price's early stuff is rock and roll or jump blues but he comes back in a big way with a new with a big time record deal with ABC Paramount and does not going to call it Rokoko but he does a pretty elaborate production of Stagger Lee the old folk song well yeah that that I I think that that wasn't his production so much but it's no, he it's a no it. it's a big loud record uh, the background vocalists are, are just like shouting and shouting and in a way propelling him on um, to tell a story that it's actually a true story. Um, it, it's a it's a murder ballad that's been in the black tradition um, ever since it happened. Uh, and there's in fact, I've got a book at home. Yeah. Staggerly shot Billy that is about <clears throat> nothing else. Yeah. Um, and it's odd to hear that on the radio. I mean, there had been death records before, but this is sort of glamorizing the bad guy, Ghost which, which is exactly the point in, in, in the black tradition, is this is the baddest guy on the block, because he can shoot Billy and get away with it. Yep. And, and you have to think that this is where the Clash heard it. That you know they later do a version on London Calling and and yeah. they might have dived deeper, but my bet is this is is 
There, there's no lack of, of versions of Stagger Lee out there at yeah. all. I mean, that's one of the reasons this guy could write the book. Um, but, uh, yeah, very probably so. And so, you know, and you talk about Bobby V, who had this fateful moment of basically he's nobody, and he gets to call to, to fill in for Buddy Holly after Buddy Holly dies on this tour. He had a major label contract, though. He, I did, he, but he wasn't nobody. He just wasn't anybody yet. Yeah. And and really the most interesting about thing about Bobby V to me is that Bob Dylan plays a few gigs with him, or at least claims to, and Bobby V doesn't dispute well, it. Bobby so. V agrees that it happened, and that he was really incompetent, and Bobby V was in no <laughs> position to fire a musician because he had a hard enough time getting musicians at all. Yeah. But Dylan was playing piano with him, and he was terrible. He he tried to overwhelm the band, and, and uh, you know, this, the focus of the band is Robert Valine, you know. He, you yeah. don't have your side men doing that, so he must have been a big problem. Yeah, yeah. It sort of makes me think of Jimi Hendrix backing up uh, Little Richard later on, but I assume well, Hendrix is more that's much another more competent. story entirely. Yeah, but the, just the overshadow, trying to overshadow the singer. Yeah, part. Um, you know, we confess that. And then another guy named Bobby that's doing something interesting around this time is Bobby Bear, who doesn't even have that stage name yet. But he releases a song. That's not a stage name. That's his real name. Yeah, but he's, he releases his first album under his first single under a different name to commemorate sort of Elvis going into the army. There's that's actually a, an interesting story. Um, Bill Perkins was a real guy who was supposed to be recording that song, and I don't know whether he just didn't show up for the session. But Fraternity Records had scheduled um, Guitar Man by Bill Perkins. And Bear had been hanging... You mean All-American Boy? All, sorry, yes, yeah. All-American Boy. Um, and uh, he'd been hanging around the studio looking to record anything. Just give me a song, man. I'm, I'm really good. And uh, so they... Well, Perkins isn't here. How about you be Perkins? And, uh, and it's a really interesting song, and it commemorates Elvis going off to the Army in a way. Right, and it also immortalizes the colonel. Along comes a man with a big cigar and said, come here, boy, I'm going to make you a star. Yeah. Which isn't exactly what happened, but the public doesn't know that. And it's, it's you know, when the legend becomes reality, print the legend or whatever the right. John Ford cliche is. And so, you know, we suddenly have this vacuum in the scene between Buddy Holly's death and Elvis going into the army. There's not really a champion from that first generation of white rock and rollers out Right, there. you know, Little Richard's in the seminary, uh, Jerry Lee is in disgrace, um, Johnny Cash has jumped ship because uh, Sun Records won't let him record gospel, and, and he's off in Columbia, and they're trying to deal with him. And they took Carl Perkins, too. Well, yeah, they, they yeah because his. they thought they could turn him into a teen idol, but he was already drunk enough that he wasn't he wasn't going to... And he's older. Like, that was one of his big points. He was older and, and had a family and so forth. So, yeah, there, there's kind of this vacuum waiting to be filled, and, and yet the people who are going to fill it aren't ready yet. You know, it's like Bobby V. He will soon be Bobby V. He'll go on to a huge career of appealing to Polish Americans, hmm. uh, which is what he was. And in fact, he would will record several albums in Polish, but um, not polka albums. He, he was enough of a, you know, a, a rock and roll kid that he recorded 
pop music, not his parents' polka music. Yeah, and and around the same time, you have an evolution in black vocal harmony groups that, to me, tracks what Phil Spector and the Teddy Bears were doing, and also the Fleetwoods, another white vocal group, were doing. But you get things like the Flamingos. Oh no, that is just you know that uh, that whole album actually. But the uh, I only have eyes for you is is a really major breakthrough. It's it's probably if if you're enough of a nerd to make a timeline, it's probably the last old style vocal group record because after that. You start getting the miracles and the temptations, and the mad lads and other people like that. Um, this is the old world of mid fifties vocal group music. It is a standard from uh, what people call the Great American uh, Songbook, and it there, there's no instrumentation. There is there's a guitar and there's a piano and there's a bass. I don't even think there's drums on that record. If they are, they're very quiet. Yeah, I mean, well, all of the background is quiet, and the the focus is on the vocal group. This is like the great contest winner um, for vocal groups when they competed. There, there was Stormy Weather and Gloria. When the once again two. Um, Tin Pan Alley standards, and here the the flamingos are probably thinking, well, what, what does present that kind of a challenge that hasn't been overdone? I mean, we could do stormy weather, but you know, there's a million stormy weathers out there, and they find they decide on this song, and they turn it into something glorious with the help of modern recording techniques because there's a there's an echo chamber there which is ideally suited to what they're doing but it's not applied with a you know a ladle like yeah. it is on a lot of those records somebody in the studio was really paying attention to what they were doing and that entire album flamingo serenade um has a lot has tracks that do that yeah, and it's as much as it's very accurate to say this is the last of the old school black vocal harmony songs, because this is a tradition going back to the Mills Brothers. Yeah, the Ravens had a big hit out the gate with Old Man River in the late forties, early fifties, but it's also one of the key records of this new sound. I mean, if you play this in a in a playlist with "To Know Him Is to Love Him," they very much sound of a piece. Contemporaries, yeah, and and peers. I mean, these are both incredibly great songs. Yeah, although I believe the Flamingos were older than than the others. Um, they'd been around since the early fifties, and um, performed at Marshall Chess's bar mitzvah because they were all Jewish. <laughs> really? Yeah, That's... they they met at Temple. That's crazy. I, I had no idea. I, you know, it's one of those things that I, I had to, when I read it first, I had to go check it somewhere else. I mean, it's completely impossible. But I I can go home and get you the name of the temple in Chicago. Huh. I had, and the chess is really, you know, yeah. when when these kids showed up, they, they really appreciated that. They thought that was really cool, you know, because it is. You know? Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And, and it, it shows that this 
cross-pollination and cross-cultural mixing is really at the heart of what's happening in American popular music at mm -hmm. this point and the big magic. And one thing that I've been sort of puzzling over since I started, since you've led me into this obs growing obsession with, with black vocal harmony groups of this era, which are sort of overlooked. I think part of it because there's so many of them. They have group names rather than stars a lot of the times. Right. But there's also this bias against vocal harmony groups and it got, it starts with Jerry Wexler and Ahmet Erdogan we talked about that a little yeah. bit and and I was reading about a little more it might have been you saying Wexler didn't like the out of tune singing and Ahmet didn't like the backstage politics and drama yeah yeah and well you know it was their loss but they also had access to a lot of stuff I don't think they were doing too well in 1959 because there was a period when they were sort of casting about for um, anything to sell records. I mean, Bobby Darren, I think, was the ultimate solution to that. Part of it, but also this was the year Lieber and Stoller have their big breakthrough with the Drifters 2.0 with, um, and I'm blanking on the title, but the, the Benny King's debut, they put strings on it. Um, it's I've got it right here. There Goes My Baby. Yeah. How could I forget that? I mean, and that to me is another one of these songs that's, it, it's the first R&B group recording with strings on it mm -hmm. and Wexler thought it was just the worst piece of crap he'd ever heard right said it was sound like two different records playing at the same he, time yeah he he said something was it him or was it Mike Stoller who who said it sounded That's like Stoller. two radio stations playing at once you know like when you're out on the highway and you're yeah between broadcast areas um, and I think Wexler was the one who characterized it. It, it. it was done by their arranger who was writing the arrangement while they were doing the session. So he was maybe distracted. But uh, Wexler called it some weird Caucasian takeoff, by which he didn't mean white people. He meant from the Caucasus, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a modal thing. Yeah. You say the, the violin break, which is very strange musically, but it really works. And and so much of it is because of Benny King's power as a vocalist. Right. But but also also, I mean it's it's got a it's a bridge and, and it's gotta connect the, the two parts of the of the record and it's just so strange. And it was an immediate hit. Yeah, Ahmet overruled Wexler and said, Let's put it out and I think you're right that they were a little desperate at that point. Well no, they were I, they were. I, I I read all the uh, billboard magazines and I kept waiting for Atlantic to show up with something, and um, they weren't. Yeah, and so, and it's a big breakthrough for Lieber and Stoller, who start a multi-year run as Atlantic's go-to producers. They kind of take the torch from Wexler. Right. And it's also, and at the same time, they're doing, they're continuing to do great stuff with the coasters, Yakety Yak. Right. And, right. That that stuff. Um, but that that's not the coasters could do vocal group moves because they were a vocal group but they were much more they were used much more as players in these little narratives that um Lieber and Stoller knit together for them yeah and and yakety yak is seamlessly knitted it doesn't a, a couple of their songs, like the Western movie song, sound a little forced. That's not them. That's not the cut. It's, it's the Olympics. It's the Olympics, but that's a Libra and Stoller. Yeah, but it's yeah. West Coast. Okay, but but with the Coasters' great hits, it doesn't sound like they're trying to force a narrative onto a record. Right. It's a great explosive rock and roll record with tons of hooks. Yep. And funny 
and tells a great story. Yep, and so did Charlie Brown. Yeah, they, they they were they were just good at doing that, and that was that was what they used that particular vocal group for. Yeah, but you know when they when they were a vocal group like shopping for clothes, you know that oh, was that them. I'm not sure. I'll have to check. Yeah. But they, and and Labor and Solar could apply the formula to other Atlantic groups like the Clovers, who have a big hit uh, with Love Potion Number Nine around that time. Right, right. Yeah. Well, they were you know banging on all cylinders at that point. They they were just you know they were hot. There you know this happens. You get hot and then you get not. But if you're really if you've really got an idea of what you can do, you you can always come back. Yeah, and and as as much as you know. Last time we were bemoaning, or I was bemoaning, you don't tend to get sucked into what-ifs like I do, but, you know, Lieber and Stoller eternally regret that they didn't get to write a full A-list production movie musical for Elvis. Right. But they go on to do this great stuff with the Drifters and the Coasters, and so it's like, who's to say this wasn't the better use of their time and talent? Yeah, and, and probably financially, you know, writing for Elvis would have entered the minefield of, of the uh, contract with the colonel, and, and um, they didn't want to do that. Yeah. They probably made more money just writing little playlets and consistently jumping them up the charts. And, and, and producing them as well. Right. And getting a piece well, Writing of and producing. Well, yeah. But there's no... Where you make your money is publishing, not from production. Uh, production was part of their contract. That was what they drew their salary but for. But when you're producing, you can pick your song. Oh, Yeah. There's no question about that, but they. I'm just saying that yeah. from the financial standpoint. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And and so that's another piece of this. I don't know. We're, we're casting around for a term, but, but symphonic pop or uh, sophisticated pop, because they're definitely, I think in a way they're responding to the backlash against rock and roll by playing this more sub superficially subdued music that has incredible musical power. I'm thinking, you know, to know him and to love him. That's not something that's going to get parents pulling their hair out and calling the station, turn this crap off. No, but Yakety Yak is about your oh, parents. Well, yeah, Yakety Yak is a different category. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking more the, the There Goes My Baby style of stuff. Yeah, the, yeah. The Young Drifters stuff, the symphonic stuff. And it's not just them. I mean, Brooke Benton comes out. Right. And uh, and Roy Hamilton has a hit with, with one that's one of his most rocking numbers. I can't remember the name of it right now, but I'll put it on the playlist for the show. Sam Cooke's out there. Uh, he's you know, not rocking at all. No. He's, he's under the thumb of Hugo and Luigi, his producers, who are just absolutely determined to turn him into a saccharine teen idol. Yeah, and yet he's still, I mean, it's not the peaks he had before he got with them or the peaks he had after, but he's still having hits and making great records. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In between the ones that aren't so great. Yeah, I mean... Everybody a, likes to cha-cha-cha. That was a huge hit, but it was a huge bummer. It was I, really I got to take my... That's my daughter's favorite song, and <laughs> we love to cha-cha-cha around to that. I mean, and it's... It's Sam wrote the song, and it's observational about a trend that's happening now. And I mean, it's it's pop, it's piffle, it's light, it's lighthearted. It, you know, it's not you singing. Uh, maybe that wasn't the best example. I, I yeah, there's you know, definitely worse. Blanking the 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 really bad offenders. Yeah, I seem to remember something called Teenage Sonata. I'll have to check that because I've I've dived a little bit into his albums of that period and. It's not clicking for him. No, you know, and, no. and and those producers. Of course, he can't help being Sam Cooke, yeah. which is the saving grace 
to the extent that there is one. Yeah, I mean, but when you think about how short his life was, it's pretty galling to think they wasted his time on some of this stuff. But it's part of the creative process and exploring. Well, it's it's part of liberating him from the straitjacket uh, that he'd had before. Um, and there weren't all that many. I mean, he wasn't all that empowered because of the way that um, the black music industry was. He wanted to transcend that. He wanted to become an all-around entertainer, and there weren't that many options. No, and, and we should have mentioned that he's moved from Keen Records to RCA at this point. Right, that's how he got big, big time. You know, Hugo and Luigi behind him, who were you know huge, sec- successful producers. Yeah. You don't have to like them, but you know, from the bottom line aspect for RCA, that's a good move. Yeah, and Sam plays the long game, works with them, has hits, puts together a long string of hits, and eventually will get his creative freedom, tragically very close to the end. Right, and you know, he's already starting to look into that. You know, he and J.W. Alexander, his manager, they're they're trying to see how they can how they can do something along more soulful lines on the side and that that uh, that results in the formation of SAR records um and um Sam's brother gets to record for them and the Sims twins and eventually the Valentinos who were the gospel group the Womack brothers yeah and and there's also some sort of a seamy underbelly there i can't remember his name now but one of the guys on that label was a pimp in LA and Sam of course infamously dies in a prostitution badger game murder tragedy but he's you know there's if you read Goralnik's bio of Sam Cooke there's talk about Sam getting turned out as a pimp which I don't quite understand no, the nuances I, of pimp culture but that he was there was some danger of him being pulled into that world I mean, it was associated well with you know when you're dealing with black show business that is those are people who have money and you can get too close to them yeah, and so uh, ask ask um, ask Larry Williams. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I'll ask you to elaborate on that one. But you know that's sort of an undercurrent that's bubbling under Sam. And one thing that from the Garonic book that I thought was fascinating was the reason Sam started seeing prostitutes was because he'd had so many paternity suits as a touring musician. I right. Mean, Sam Cook's not a guy you would think would need to pay prostitutes. I mean, he was married. He should have been home with his wife, or, I mean, who am I to judge? But he he had this sexual need, he had this incredible charisma and sex appeal, but it was too dangerous for him to mess around with fans, so he starts patronizing professional ladies, and that ultimately causes his death. But I'm getting ahead of myself there. One other gospel-related, gospel-sourced group, church-based group, that emerges this year with another one of these type of songs we've been describing is The Impressions with Jerry Butler for Your right. Precious Love. Is that a Curtis Mayfield written song? I don't know, um, but Curtis was the the creative uh, impulse behind that, and uh, he also was unusual in that he was a pretty forthright guitar player, and this um, is a gospel-structured uh, group with the guitar player up front. Uh, this is the, this is the Chicago style, which owes a lot to Pop Staples and the Staples Singers. But yeah, Jerry Butler is just this am- amazingly rich voice. He opens his mouth and this thing comes out that's absolutely perfect. And of course, he leaves the group 
fairly quickly because VJ wants to spin him off as a solo act. Yeah, and that sets the impressions back for a while. It takes oh, yeah. Curtis a while to develop because he's got a higher voice and, and has to sort of retune, but he's still involved with Jerry Butler on the creative side, and it's the beginnings of Curtis Mayfield's big contribution in Northern Soul in Chicago. And within a few years, he'll be producing and writing for not just the Impressions, but another, a number yeah, of other people. You're so right. This- I, I wouldn't call that Northern Soul. Uh, Northern Soul is Motown ripoff, uh, fast soul music, which goes into the, uh, it derives from the early to mid 60s. Huh. Um, that's a, it's a British phenomenon that doesn't exist in the United States, thank God. <laughs> well, yeah, but their source is, I mean, you know, Major Major Lance's songs that Mayfield wrote, right. a lot of impression songs right. were there. So I always thought that they were using Northern Soul to mean not Southern, as a, you know, so Motown and Curtis and Chicago well, versus Well, it's Midwestern. And, and actually, I think there's a case to be made that Chicago Soul itself is a genre, a small genre, the way Memphis soul is. Huh, huh. Yeah, we could argue about that all day, but the important thing is that a major talent emerges on the scene with this song. Two major talents between Butler and and Mayfield, and and it's just the beginning of big things. But one group that's been here through the thick of it and doesn't capitalize on it commercially but is in the thick of it creatively is the five royales who we've talked about before Mm -hmm. but a lot of rock critics think that the song that came out this year slumber the slum is their peak it was their it was their live climax um and it wasn't i don't understand this nobody understands why king records treated them so badly when not only were they creatively great okay so we can say somebody didn't have ears but they were also really hot on the live circuit. And this one song, I mean, somebody should have gone to one of their shows and went, yeah, this is a, this is a hit. And, and they managed to boil it down to a three-minute single, which King put on the B-side of another song and, and gave it the wrong title. The, it's a dance record. It's called The Stompity Stomp. And yeah. anybody who's looking for that won't see it. The slumber, the slum. What in the world does that mean? Yeah, it, may- it means nothing in terms of the in terms of the lyrical content of the song. Yeah, and, and also the guitar playing. Linus Paul is that his name? Linus Paulin? No, no, it's um, Linus Loman Paulin. Paulin. Loman Paulin. Yeah, Linus Paulin, somebody else. But the guitar <laughs> playing on that is years ahead of its time. Oh yeah, and I don't know if Jeff Beck ever got a hold of this record, but. It's playing with ideas. I mean, other than Johnny Burnett and the Rock and Roll Trio, this is another. This is the most distorted rock and roll guitar you're going to hear from this era. Well, yeah, a lot. A lot of the. I mean, the one I always uh, point to is "Say It," and um, ooh, there's there's several of their singles that um, have weirdly distorted. Not just. The sound of the guitar, but the guitar line is asymmetrical against a very uh, solid beat. Yeah, and it's... but but this this the reason this was their big hit was that in order the guys could keep dancing, but they didn't have to keep singing, and Loman would go nuts on a guitar solo, which which played. I mean, the only people I know who saw them perform this were white guys in um, fraternity 
party situations. Do you know if they ever recorded a longer take, like a live take of that? No, no. Oh, who who would put long. it out? Yeah. You know, they, they, they were having trouble enough, you know, getting anybody to play their records. So they were intensely dependent on, on live performance. Yeah, and so Sid Nathan and King Records definitely drops the ball with the Five Royales. Around this time, though, he has a second hit on James Brown. Yeah, which was... Let's see, I've got it written down. Should have answered that first. It's a uh, please. No, it's not please, please, please. It's think. I think. Yeah, think. It's think. Uh, which is a five or L song, which yeah. is, you know, Sid Nathan working his publishing as always. Um, it doesn't have the guitar as much up front, uh, and it definitely focuses on James. But I think James was always very much in debt to uh, Loman Pauling for having saved his career, essentially. There's nothing really wrong with the singles James was putting out uh, over those years um, and not having hits with. It's just that they, they weren't great records. They were very good records, but they weren't great records. And let's face it, you know, Mr. Program Director on the radio station has a lot of great records that he, he can play, and he's only got a certain number he can add each week. So, yeah, sorry about that. So this... You know, I think plays a vital role in keeping James Brown hot and allowing him to continue building his live audience and touring the country. And in a few more years, you know, obviously he'll record world domination. Yeah. But yeah, the the other thing is that the only reason he could get away with that was it was a song that people were already familiar with because the Royals had had a substantial hit with it. Yeah, and that and that's I was uh, I've I've given a few people a sneak preview of the show and and. One one of the best questions I got back was, you know, why did they let people force them to play these songs? Like, the, it's so different now. We identify songs with songwriters and performers so it's much now. All down to the Beatles and yeah, that, and Bob the, Dylan. The, the things things weren't like that back then. They just really weren't. There was the the whole sheet music mindset that the song is the thing had been challenged by rock and roll. But it hadn't been supplanted yet because there weren't the Beatles. There weren't Bob Dylans out there. And professional songwriters like the Aldon writers, uh, the Teen Pan Alley people, as I call them, um, they were more important than the performers who were performing their songs. You know, it was like, well, we really need material for these people are good. Where do we go? We go to Goffin and King, you know, because never mind these kids. They're just kids. They'll do what we tell them to do. Yeah. But from the singer's side, there was also an art of song interpretation. Yeah. you. That was, they were the people who succeeded. Okay, so the A&R guys got you something from Aldon. Now perform it. And, you know, you're not a songwriter. You're a singer. You hear this, you go, wow, that's a really good song. I'm going to do a good job on it. Yeah, and I'm going to do my own version. Well, naturally, I'm yeah. a star. Yeah, and so there's there's... A whole aesthetic of singers confronting material. I mean, somebody like Frank Sinatra would do a session where he might do a whole album by one songwriter, yeah. you know, and it would be Frank sings so and so, and 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 it's seen as sort of a heavyweight artistic confrontation where Frank, the singer, confronts uh, the songwriter. And I think a lot of attempts to get somebody like Sam Cooke or Little Willie John to do, or Frankie Lyman to do these standards is like, can these guys? reach that level as an interpretive singer. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times there's barking up the wrong tree, but I don't blame them for making the attempt. No, because that was how things worked. You know, the, the idea that you could 
have somebody who is a great performer, a great singer, a great songwriter, and a great instrumentalist all in one package was, well, it was a utopian dream, but nobody had achieved it yet. Yeah, and and this is also an era where there's all these new things are happening, but there's also a lot of vigor and vitality in the older things. I mean, Frank Sinatra's still making great records sure. at this time, and Steve and Edie are making fun pop records and are, are young and charismatic, and, mm-hmm. you know, Andy Williams has a TV show. I mean, this this isn't like young versus old so much as it's it's a young aesthetic versus an old aesthetic, but the performers are young on both sides. The, the old aesthetic hadn't died yet. It hadn't begun to wither, ha- hadn't been wounded. You know, it, it was it was there. It was and and once again we're talking about the big cities. It came out of New York. It came out of Los Angeles. Those were the two poles between which the entertainment business functioned. Yeah. And one guy that I think you give that you could argue you give a little bit short shrift to, and I understand the case against him, is Bobby Darren. Big rock and roll hits on Atlantic with Splish Splash that he wrote himself. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a it's not it's not, you know, good rock and tonight, but it's credible and it's and it's you know, he's a very talented performer and he very quickly I mean if you read about his career he very quickly does this radical interpretation of Mac the Knife. Right. That becomes a huge standard hit. And is perceived as, as a jazz record. Yeah. Which which it's a was a very innovative jazz record. Right. which was the whole idea. Because he did he didn't like Splish Splash any more than anybody else did in terms of artistic quality. Who wants to be remembered for that? Yeah. Uh, and he was a very, very ambitious guy. So and and Amit and, and Jerry, you know, at Atlantic were they were fine with that, and they lost him almost immediately because his ambitions were so huge. Yeah, and and I mean, you know, he gets lumped in with Frankie Avalon and Fabian sometimes, but this is a very different prospect. This is a very talented musician, yeah. a very clear, you know, he had this heart problem that would kill him young, and he was aware of it, and so he's really trying to squeeze everything out of life. He and, married Sandra D. Yeah, and a huge <laughs> star. I mean, and if you read his press clippings from the time, it's like, what an arrogant kid. I mean, this is a kid right. who's literally walking up to Frank Sinatra and trying to steal the throne. I mean, you know, like, give me that crown, dude. Yeah. I'm the new king yeah. of jazz pop singing. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's not, you know, you can call it the Dark Ages and you can say he's not Elvis, but he's a very interesting phenomenon. Well, it was the Dark Ages for those of us listening to the radio, because suddenly the stuff had, that we liked had disappeared or become, you'd have to, you know, in an hour of listening to the radio, you'd be getting maybe six minutes of stuff you actually wanted to hear. And there was the Philadelphia invasion, you know, which, I mean, you, you, you can say that there are people who are better than them, but you can't say that they weren't getting played on the radio. Yeah. Which, you know, I, I mean, after hearing... Fabian grown through one of his records the third time, you maybe wanted to go do something else. Yeah, and, and Fabian... Th- those kids had to be taught. I mean, there, there's that great movie, The Idolmaker, which is all true. That yeah, Who, who was the trumpet player? Um, um, I don't know. But one of, the, one of those guys was a, a trumpet player. And this guy says, you can't be a star playing the trumpet. You have to sing. And so he did, you know, and that's what made his his uh, career. And Fabian, the guy went 
God, this guy is handsome. And then he heard him and went, oh, we got some work ahead of us. And literally, this guy was an idol maker. He really did mold these kids. You, know, you are my slave. You do what I say, and we'll all make money. Yeah, and they did make money, and they made some... I mean, even with Doc Palmer, some more Schumann writing for him, Fabian can barely get out the gate. I yeah, mean. and it... I mean, and here's something that I always start objecting to, but in this case, it's true. There was payola, and there were, and if it wasn't overt, here is some money, please play my record. It, it was the interconnecting web of companies, um, which Dick Clark had put together. Yeah, you know, I mean, if if you're Italian kid with good hair manages to record the right song by the right songwriter who's under commission to see Lark music. And if he appears looking good and without blowing it, lip syncing on bandstand, and if he makes the right personal appearances at shows promoted by the right people... Dick Clark. Yes, and Associates. Yeah. I mean, because Dick, Dick was smart. He never took the whole pie. Yeah, he cut people in, much like Meyer Lansky on the mafia side. And it's interesting, you know, the Paola scandal, it's almost like they're looking for a problem more so than, than they're so outraged at the idea of DJs taking money to play records. They, they, were, they were barking up the wrong tree the whole time. The, the, our modern concept of the mafia... Um, didn't really exist at that point. Uh, organized crime, they hadn't, you know, the people like the FBI hadn't figured it out. The Paola scandal was motivated by the idea that no decent teenager would ever buy these records unless there was something underhanded going on. And that is ridiculous. That is absolutely incorrect and a stupid way to approach a problem that existed, but wasn't the problem they thought it was. It's kind of like Hillary Clinton blaming Putin for the election results. But, I mean, and and to me, you look at outcomes, Paola destroys Alan Freed, who'd been this innovative DJ who had promoted so much vital rock and roll and tons and, of African American And whose American ears were, were good. I mean, that's how he started in Cleveland way, way back then. He liked this stuff that he'd never heard before. And Dick Clark, who's at the hearings, admits to much bigger scale of payola than free, skates. I mean... He didn't admit to that. He admitted that he had a controlling interest in a pressing plant. He admitted that he had a music publishing company. In no way were these senators cognizant enough of the way the music business works to be able to draw the right lines between the right dots. That's an excellent point because Free is more like the, the what I would say, the African-American politician getting busted with a bag full of cash in his freezer. Right. And Dick Clark's the guy doing huge fundraisers with Goldman Sachs and everything's great. Yeah. But the end result is people are getting screwed and Dick Clark's getting a ton of money. And because Freed was the naive competitor, he was still a competitor. And he still had to be taken out. Uh, they were both on the same network, ABC. A and Dick Clark kept pointing to conflicts of interest in Freed's 
situation when he had plenty of conflicts of interest. After his first hearing, Freed walked out of the Philadelphia courthouse and one of his friends said to him, geez, Dick, you look beat. He says, I was up all night dissolving companies. Yeah, that was Dick Clark, not Alan Freed. You said Freed at first, but yeah, he was getting himself out of these yeah. shell companies. So, so that when when they actually went in to look, and, and Freed didn't. Yeah. He, Freed was, was too naive to do that. He was operating out of love of the music. And love of being a star, I think. Well, yeah, there was that, too. Yeah, and a drunk. So, yeah. you know. Well, and those two go together. Yeah, three strikes and, and you're out. But uh, one of the points I wanted to make when I was talking about how these older traditions are still very vibrant, as you point out, that jazz is still a medium that can have hits, and Cannonball Adderley is out there trying to pull jazz away, you know, from this esoteric direction that's right. been taken in and getting it back into. I, the I don't think he's trying to pull it away. I think he's just saying, "Well, this is the way. I mean, this is the way it's been done, and this is my vision of the way it's always been done." And you know, if Mingus wants to do these gigantic twelve-minute five uh, movement compositions, that's all very well and good, but I'm going to blow the blues, thank you. Yeah, and he, and he has hits, and as evidenced by Brian Jones naming, what, four illegitimate children after him, he, <laughs> <laughs> he was making an impact on young people and rock and roll fans. Sure. I mean, I, even I heard him on the radio, and, and, you know, I was listening in New York. Yeah, and his, he had a hit with that there. And he also, you credit him as being the man who named Soul. As a genre. Yeah, the, the, uh, and I think he's the first person to push the term. Um, Atlantic had always described Ray Charles in that way, but it seemed, until Cannonball sort of opened it up to everybody, it seemed like Ray Charles owned soul. And there was too much soul out there for one man to contain it, even Ray Charles, or Cannonball Adderley. Yeah, and... One guy who grabs for a lot, of, a big chunk of the soul pie is Barry Gordy. We talked about him last time as a songwriter uh, with Jackie Wilson, and he's got a failed record store, and his, apparently his takeaway from the failed record store was, don't try to sell the kids jazz and the music I like, sell the kids what they want to buy. Right, exactly, and, and he had to really get down on his knees to the family corporation to get the money to start a new record label. And didn't really get it yet. But he was also not that concerned with soul. Um, he was very lucky in getting Smokey Robinson on his side, who was a soulful performer, but he wasn't a soul performer. And it wasn't until much, much later that Gordy began to, I guess you could say, make blacker records. Yeah. Um, he was really concerned with getting on the pop charts first because that's where the money was, you know. And he had this vision that he could use black support to help move records up the chart to the point where white program directors would see it and white kids would hear it and he could start making some money. It took him a long time to do it, too. Yeah, and, and he's confronting the same problem that Sam Phillips had confronted about 10 years earlier where, you know, Sam Phillips records Ike Turner, B.B. King, Howlin' Wolf, and has some R&B hits, but 
he realizes if I want to make a living at this and really make a big impact, I need a white singer. That was Sam Phillips' solution right. you know, with Elvis and Jerry Lee and Carl Perkins. And he does it. Barry Gordy's got the same thing. I want that white audience. That's what you need to really make a, a living and make a fortune. Right. And I don't have the option. I mean, he well, does he, sign white performers. Yeah, but, but his, they, they were terrible. Yeah, he figures out a way to sell people like Smokey Robinson to a white audience. And that's why he was so much behind the Supremes, was because he heard them as not being very soulful at all, but being very, very accurate and technically accomplished. He just couldn't get them material for yeah. years. Yeah. The no-hit Supremes. Yeah, and but eventually he does, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. But first, first right out of the gate, he has a, a small hit, with Come to Me, they have to license out to United Artists. He doesn't have the wherewithal to distribute the record. Right. He's he's learning the record business from the ground up, really. Although he'd been a, a successful songwriter, he hadn't. He really wanted the whole machine, and he didn't understand how the machine worked. Yeah, but he figures it out fast. Oh yeah, he was desperate. Yeah. He had a very limited amount of money to work with. He would have hired a distributor. For that record, but he just didn't have the cash. He, you know, he probably went to somebody and said, "So how much? If I press this up, how much would it cost for me to distribute this in Detroit?" And they told him, "He went, I can't do that." Yeah, and so and so he took a very similar. I don't think he was aware of what Sam Phillips had done, but very similar, where Sam Phillips had licensed his early records right. to Chess and and and, and then he eventually went wound up licensing a hit record to his sister's label, Anna, which. She distributed through Chess, and and Barry didn't want to go there again. He'd already had a couple of records by the Miracles on on Chess, and he he want he wanted to keep as much of it as he could. So he figured getting into business with his sister would help him out, and eventually uh, he was able to accrue enough money. Well, having having that hit money was a was a big deal, yeah, uh, in terms of cash flow. Yeah, and the whole Barry Gordy story is sort of an illustration of, you know, Mark 425, to he that hath shall be given. I mean, this is a guy, if you read biographies of the of Gordy, his family, from the moment they escaped slavery, were entrepreneurs and business people and very successful, and they networked amongst themselves, and they and they loaned money to each other. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a great African-American success story. They had to move north because, you know, in the south, if you're too successful, white guys would come along and burn your house down and lynch you or take your stuff whatever they move north where they can hold more of their own assets and where there were a lot of refugees from the south yeah detroit detroit boy jobs in the auto industry booming and and he you know has his first song it's a hit that he licenses out he he tries several more songs and then he gets barrett strong he writes the song money which is right up there with what I say as far as being a riff rocker. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's one of these songs that John Lennon is going to hear in England and go crazy for. Brian Jones is going to hear it and go crazy for. And you outline the band that played on Money, and it's pretty much the Funk Brothers. I mean, you got Benny Benjamin and James Jamerson, the drummer and bassist. No. He, that's what you said in the book. No, it isn't. It's not? It's not? Money was a session where a bunch of the guys were messing around with this song, which the receptionist and Barry were still writing. And they were making so much noise that two kids, two white kids, 
We were coming home from school. One of them had a bass and one of them had a guitar. And they heard this noise coming out of this building and they walked in and they saw that something was happening. And Barry goes, let's record this. And they go, hey, sir, um, I got a guitar and he's got a bass. And go, Come on, let's go. So there are members of the Motown house band. There. You're right, you're right. But it does say Benjamin, Benny Benjamin was on drums. Okay. So uh, I think of him as a bass player. But um, No, Benny, James Jamerson. Was I'm sorry, drummer. you're right. That's a very confusing thing. But I think it's also awesome. I mean, Benny Benjamin and James Jamerson right. <laughs> in the same band. And they're both incredible uh, musicians. And so, yeah, you're right. You do tell the story of the... Of the and the, then after the session, nobody paid them because, you know, they weren't union members. And... And nobody knows who they were, and they have never come forward. That is awesome. So. It's one of those great stories because here was the song that launched a huge empire, and nobody knows who it was. Huh. And I, I, my apologies for stepping on the story and misunderstanding who played on it. But to me, like the moral of that is, is Gordy's opportunism, his ear. And the ability to build a team of people around him. Yeah. He inspired fierce loyalty. That receptionist was still working there when they moved to Los Angeles. Which wow. Which was, what, 1970? Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you look at Gordy versus his peers, it's that ability to create a team and hold it together that separates him from Phil Spector or even Sam Phillips. I mean, Sam Phillips, around this time, you talk about being sort of directionless. He's lost his, you know second wave of rock and rollers and he's got some guys doing some interesting things he's got charlie rich right. on deck who's an immense talent but he doesn't know what to do with them right and you point out one thing that's changed is that marion kessler the woman who really discovered elvis and brought him to his attention has left kaiser kaiser has left yeah and and that is a big piece of the sam phillips puzzle yeah yeah it, it's whatever he did to piss her off um he paid for because her ear and her enthusiasm was really important to what went on there. The other thing that Barry Gordy did that none of the old old school guys did was he made sure everybody got paid. You know, maybe you only made 75 cents, but you got those three quarters, you know. Barry would hand it to you. Because how else is he going to keep people loyal to a shoestring operation? Yeah, and when it becomes less of a shoestring, uh, you know, when it becomes a machine, there's all this rivalry and bitterness and people feeling like, I should have got that song or I should have got the push on. But they don't floor. say, I should have got paid. Yes, and that's the <laughs> thing. That, that, <laughs> that keeps people. So I think, I think Barry Gordy, somehow as much of a legend and a huge part of our culture as Motown is, Barry Gordy still gets less credit, I think, than he deserves yeah. somehow. Yeah, yeah. He, he, um... Well, especially in the early days, you know, building that machine in Detroit. Uh, and he also wasn't the only game in town because uh, once, well, there's always been a black recording industry in in um, in Detroit. I mean, you know, John Lee Hooker. Um, Little Colonel, Willie John came out of there. Little era, Willie John. There. Um, and uh, what was the name of that record company? See, that's just it. These are the people who have always held on to their tapes and have never never released them. Fortune. Fortune, yeah. Yeah, Fortune Records, Nolan Strong and Diablos, and, 
and Andre Williams, you know, great, great, great records, which we don't hear anymore these days because there's a couple of stingy white people in Detroit who think they're sitting on billions of dollars and letting their tapes decay. That's uh, really... Well, it's, a, it's a major tragedy, but yeah. I don't see any way out of it because if these people have kids, they're not going to care. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, there's still hope uh, that they'll uh, come come to light someday. But one other record company that's starting around this time is Jim Stewart in Memphis starts right. Satellite Records, becomes Stax. That's such a weird story. I mean, here here he is out in in. You can't even say the suburbs. It was it was out in the country. He had this studio that he inherited from a guy who was writing country songs and having success with them. And so he's out there trying to write songs himself, you know, just seeing, oh, look at that. I don't even have to sing it. You know, it, it, the music publishing is what I make money off of. It was his barber. That yeah, was his barber, right. And, and Jim, his connection to the music was, he was a, a really good, apparently, um, fiddle player. And so he, he apparently recorded, uh, played on some of the Barber's tracks. Hmm. And um, so he's out there, and out of nowhere, this vocal group shows up and wants to record. So he says, well, it's not my usual thing. Yeah, okay, I can do this. And meanwhile, his sister is a fan of black music, Memphis black music, and she's working in a bank, and one of the things she does for fun is she'll buy records for her co-workers. Hey, I heard this record on the college station on W, probably WDIA, you know, it, it was really good, and it went sort of like this, and she'd go, oh, okay, and so she'd go out and try to try to find it, and uh, she made a little, you know, spending cash that way. At the bank. Yeah. And eventually, she convinces her brother that if they were to buy a professional recording machine, which cost $12,000, and they could get a little closer into town, maybe, that there would be, that talent would come to them, just the way talent came to Sam Phillips. And she opens a record store in the front lobby of that building. Right. And that that was the A&R department of Stax Records or Satellite Records yeah. initially was that um, she would play records all the time in the store and watch what made the little kids hanging out front dance. Yeah. And then she decided that this was um, a real drag on her day job and she was just getting too tired. So she hired uh, somebody else to run the shop and that, that was uh, Steve Cropper who was a guitar player, white guitar player, who also loved this music and who had also learned a lot of his guitar tricks from Loman Pauling. Yep, and talk about that, seeing the Five Royals live. Right. And that is, uh, and coming home from a, a Five Royals show and, and changing the way he hung his guitar. Right, taking off his belt and attaching that to the strap. Yeah, so he's got the low-slung guitar. And another guy that gravitates to stacks is Chip's Moment. Right, who is a another white guy with a love of black music. And um, and and a real talent for recording, which was a, a, a skill that uh, Stax lacked. Stax, of course, I don't know 
how soon that name came into into being, but um, it, it was short for Stewart, Jim Stewart, and Estelle Axton, his his sister. His sister, yeah, and who's a key key thing. And one guy we haven't talked about who gets X'd out, one of the, the last of the great original rock and rollers, has his X out moment. We talked about this last week. You know, Jerry Lee Lewis gets in disgrace, Buddy Holly dies, Elvis gets drafted, Chuck Berry gets hit with a Man Act violation. Right. Of incredibly, well, I don't know. I mean, the more you read about that, the more ambiguous it is. Exactly what happened is a good question. Yeah. But. And she was young. She, she was, was 14. Young, no question Native about American, it. American, not white, but still, you know. Seeing black men with even a Native American or a Latino woman would set men off in the South. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, she was moved across state lines. She did engage in prostitution while working for Barry in a legitimate capacity as well. Right. But she was terrible in the club, which also shades his innocence. Yeah. He didn't fire her immediately. And the woman he had running his club... Uh, who was a no-nonsense white woman, she was like, this girl can't do anything. You know, give her pictures to to sell of the performers, and she can't do that. Running the hat check? Forget it. She's off wandering looking at the band. People are trying to check their coats. And, uh, there was... and he, he's still not firing her. And finally, he gives her money to get on a, a bus to get out of town, and instead she uses it to rent a hotel room and continue her previous profession. Yeah, and gets busted and then and then talks to the and police. And pressured by the police to admit that it was the evil colored man, the evil rich colored man, who was behind her entrepreneurship. Yeah, and given his later scandals with the cameras set up in the restrooms at his amusement park and so on, you know, you're not inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt in the sex scandal. But nonetheless, this was a case, I think, of... of a racist system coming down on a very successful African-American. The um, judge in the first trial said so many explicitly racist things that it was disqualified. Which took some doing. Yeah, his lawyer was really brave, and he, I think, got crapped on for it. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, there was no question that, that it was a racist uh, decision. Yeah, and at the same time, he's doing some of his best work. I mean, Memphis is written around the mm-hmm. sun to almost no impact. Yeah, it was not a hit. And then, and he's got almost grown, which is a hit. But I mean, aesthetically, he's firing on all cylinders. He's growing as a musician. Mm-hmm. Memphis, one of the great story songs in yeah. rock and roll history, and you know, he gets X'd out. I mean, there, you just look at the actuarial tables of the early rock and rollers and. You know, whether it's bad luck in the case of Carl Perkins, you know, or institutional bias in the case, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis is taken down by the media, Chuck Berry is taken down by the courts, Elvis is taken down by the draft board. Obviously, Jerry Lee and Chuck were also co-authors of their own undoing. But, right, still. But, yeah, I mean, there were plenty of, Frank Sinatra was getting away with murder. Right, <laughs> not almost literally. Murder. Yeah, <laughs> and so, you know, there, there's definitely a feeling that the man is out to get rock and roll and with the pale escape. Well, it was. it was. I mean, you know, the FBI was, instead of looking at organized crime, they were, you know, trying to decide whether or not the communists were behind rock and roll. 
<laughs> yeah. That's, Which, if you know anything about the way the communists think, is really ridiculous. Yeah, the commies hated rock and roll, too. And there's also big business changes around with the Top 40 format right. uh, is, is gaining ground. And also this phenomenon you described, the oldies but goodies repackaging thing. Happens. Yeah, that was that was a weird thing that um, this guy who had a radio show in Los Angeles, and in order to promote the radio show, he, um, he was a disc jockey at, at a burger joint drive-in. And he noticed that songs that were really old by rock and roll standards were very positively responded to by the um, the kids at the drive-in. And um, so I think it was his girlfriend had him put together a compilation tape. And because um, she liked all this stuff too. And, you know, she hadn't been there when it happened. And she said, you ought to put this out as, a, as an LP, which there weren't rock and roll LPs back then. But he thought... You know, if these records are doing this there, I at the at the drive-in, this might work. So he very intelligently named his label Original Sound and put out an album called Oldies But Goodies. And what happened? Some of those songs wound up on the charts again. Earth Angel by the Penguins. Earth Angel by the Penguins was was the major one, but uh, in the still of the night. Also, you know, that that hadn't really been a hit the first time around, and suddenly it was. It was a phenomenon, and it was because the original rock and roll kids, the kids who discovered rock and roll right at the start, who bought the Annie records and so forth, they'd grown up. They had kids. They had fond memories of their teenage years. And they had the money to buy an LP. Yep, because he, the economy was doing well. And he had the <clears throat> smarts to license all those yeah. things from the record companies who were like, I'm not doing anything with Earth Angel. You know, Earth Angel hadn't made him money in a while. Yep. And here comes some fool wants to license it for an LP. Sure, I'll take the check right money now. Money for nothing. Here it is. Yeah, and meanwhile, you know, talk about money for nothing. I mean, putting together a compilation of songs you had nothing to do with. Right. You're, you're monetizing your record collection. Yeah, and uh, so this, that, I thought that was a really fascinating case. And, and, and one of the things I like about the book is the, that you talk about the musical side, but you also talk about the cultural side and the business side. Yeah, because you really can't separate them. If you can't make the cultural information available via business it's not going to happen yeah and so that's pretty much what i wanted to cover from 1959 next time we'll talk about 1960 another one of these dark ages years with mountains of great records yeah to listen to and we'll see more barry gordy and more phil specter uh and more goffin and king and the alden songwriting team we'll talk about the brill building next time Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate welcomes Michael Azarad to discuss the new edition of his classic biography of Nirvana, Come As You Are. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.